You're listening to The Worship Review, a podcast which evaluates contemporary Christian music for the good of the church to the glory of God. This podcast is for the whole church to encourage thoughtful engagement with the words, emotions, and ideas in our music. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. Hello and welcome back to The Worship Review, your favorite Christian podcast uh, broadcasting to you live from North America. Uh, I am Tyler. I'm a linguist, a former uh, worship leader. I say former not because uh, we are some kind of... And the awkwardness uh, begins. The awkwardness begins. <laughs> I'm Tyler. I'm a former worship leader, and I'm joined by my good friend and co-host, Colin. Ty- what Tyler isn't saying is that he was kicked out of, of his worship leading gig. Um, yeah, I got fired. Yeah, I got fired. I just one day it was so bad. Ate too much guacamole. Like that was the that was the problem. I'm Colin. I am a comedian, and occasionally also a what do I do? I'm a history professor at a large research university in the Midwest. You say you're a professor. Can you profess something for us briefly? I don't. I don't even know how to do that. I'm just faking it. Really, I. I don't even know. I don't know anything about history. I just I just read Wikipedia in class, actually. That's all I do. <laughs> I remember talking to someone whose professor was actually just reading from Wikipedia in class one time. <laughs> and he said he decided to quit grad school at that point. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, fake it till you make it sounds like a plausible theory until you make it. And then you faked it and yeah. you don't know how to make it anymore. We're all faking it a little bit. Well, today we are uh, neither faking it. Um, Norm, <laughs> awkward count number two. What a podcast this is! Well, you know, it's well, amazing to me, making... Tyler, is that anybody listens to this podcast? People do listen to the podcast, you wouldn't think so because of the content, but it's shocking to me that people listen to this podcast. I'm not like, shocked, and people we that we don't even know, here. like not people we know that that kind of feel obligated to do so. In fact, the people I know that I originally told about this con podcast none of them listen to the podcast anymore it's all strangers <laughs> they got tired of it but no yeah i occasionally say hey we tell my wife or my wife's family oh yeah we just dropped an episode which you might be interested in and there's there's some interest uh at least in response to that but then no follow-up yeah. which tells me no. my, i don't know my wife doesn't listen to it no can. she's she's totally bored uh she finds it <laughs> totally uninterested but whoever you listeners are out there we're grateful that you listen to it maybe we should review a song tyler yeah, we should probably cut to the chase, do our listeners a favor. So we've been over the past several weeks now looking at songs which we deem excellent. And for today's episode, Colin has brought us another song by Sovereign Grace Music called You Made Us Your Own. Colin, why did you bring this song before this illustrious panel? I developed a special appreciation for this song way back when I led worship at a church in England, which was a church that was affiliated with Sovereign Grace uh, churches at that time. And this was a song that came out while I was there. And 
I find it to be a nice song about adoption, really, about what God does to rescue a people that are guilty and at enmity with him and to graft them in. It reminds me a lot of the passage in Matthew 22, which describes, it's a parable, but it describes uh, a wedding feast where uh, the people who are invited to the wedding feast basically say they can't come. And so the um, the Lord of the feast sends out and gets a bunch of people who weren't originally invited and brings them in. And so this is a song that just, I think, speaks powerfully about 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 a person like me who is not in God's original covenant Hebrew people, but yet was grafted in through the work of Christ. And obviously many Christians can sing a song like this. All Christians can sing a song like this in gratitude for being made a member mm. of God's family. And there's a, there's a lot of humility in that too, in that parable that you, you mentioned, uh, the implication of going out to the highways and byways to pick up people is that these are you know, not necessarily reputable people or people who are uh, deemed worthy based on their appearance or skills or knowledge, um, but only by the mercy of the of the feast givers. So that is us on this podcast, mm-hmm. let me say. Yeah. Well, why don't we dive in then to these lyrics? We were ruined in our sin. We were guilty and undone. When your love reached down with sovereign hands and beckoned us to come. We were ruined in our sin. We were guilty and undone. When your love reached down with sovereign hands and beckoned us to come. At the very beginning of the song, we get a sense of a problem. Ruinedness, so being utterly kind of destroyed or just worthless. Ruined can be like impoverished. There are lots of uh, ways you could think of that word. And then obviously, but it's not just that we're in a bad place. There are other songs that talk about the idea of things being generally bad in some way, or even like the idea of broken. That's a very popular way of describing Euphem, you know, a euphemism for sin, but this also uses the the verb, uh, or this also uses the idea of being guilty. So we were guilty, and also talks about sin. So it's very explicit about what our problem is. We're impoverished, and we're impoverished. We're guilty. Our our, our impoverishedness is sort of on our own heads in a way. So I like the way that this song sets up in just two lines what the problem is. I think that's the first useful thing about the song. And I jump in here. I was thinking about this and these lines, of course, reminded me of a verse from Come Ye Sinners, uh, 1759 hymn. Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. Uh, And it seems like this is borrowing you know, the same from the same images in scripture that this song is. And you, you slightly slighted the idea of someone being um, broken. And this was a big hiccup for me when I first approached this song was um, what is the status or the status of fallen uh, man? He isn't ruined beyond hope because God is merciful 
uh, and is the hope of is the only hope of the ruined uh, sinner. But as I, I just reflect on uh, scripture, there are a lot of different images that are used. Um, I don't know if broken is that seems like a novel one, but certainly lost, certainly gone astray, certainly um, ungodly, um, lusting after idols. And so in order to kind of orient myself, I went back to Genesis 3, and I also looked at Romans um, 1, which is very, very clear about this. So um, just to read, if if anyone's upset about someone being called ruined, as in like a ruin of a building uh, that has been destroyed, uh, let's just read Romans 129 to 31. They were filled, they were sinners. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Uh, any of those yeah. words could have been uh, put there. And so actually ruined in our sin kind of seems like almost a little bit of a softball uh, by comparison. So, uh Initially, I had some qualms about about ruined because we are created in the image of God, and uh, our sin, though resulting in uh, deserving us being deserving of eternal uh, damnation, um, does not mar the image of God that's on us. Um, so, in that sense, I would say that component of our humanity is not ruined. Um, but because of Adam's sin, we are incapable of doing good uh, without the mercy of God. So I think that's also kind of what's meant by undone. Un- undone also struck me as odd because um, undone can mean something that was made to be a certain way being reversed. Um, and I don't think that is the I don't think that's what's meant here, Colin. What do you think is meant by undone? So the first thing is we are without hope in this world in and of ourselves, which I think, you know, you, you I know that you agree with, right? Where we're, we, our only hope is in God, but on our, on our own, on our own merits, we are ruined. We're utterly ruined. And then the idea of being undone, um, I don't know. I, I, if we think about the original creation and it being good and it being without sin, in a sense, we were undone. Like mankind was originally in the garden with God and walked with God and talked with God and et cetera. And in a sense, we have become, we haven't been unmade, but we have been corrupted, right? We have been, that, that good has been has been undone, and now the only our only hope of goodness is the intervention of God in mm. Christ. Okay, I think I I am okay with these words, but for different reasons. So, uh, like you, I I would also say you know we are not uncreated or unmade or something like that. But instead, I think undone here is meant in the um, idiomatic sense in which it often is used to mean defeated ah, or okay. crushed. So like. As soon as, uh, I don't know, the tanks entered the battle, her plans for domination were undone. As in, she didn't unmake her plans. She just um, 
her plans were defeated. Yeah, like woe, woe to me, I am undone. So yeah, I, I think these are these are great uh, opening lines for setting the scene of the problem. I will say this song is a bit heavy on the Calvinism, so it's very much the actions in the song are are God. So God reached down, His love reached down, and with sovereign hands and that sovereign idea, right? That's often a code word for Calvinism, especially in the new Calvinist movement, which sovereign grace, this song came out around, I don't know, 2010 or so. The new Calvinist movement was still alive and kicking, you know, was in, it was, it, it was still, I would say in the area of its peak. And so words like sovereign got used a lot in, even in the songs that came out of those movements. And then God beckons. So God God commands us or implores us to come. I like all of this. I think it's really a nice way of saying that the problem that we had of being guilty and ruined is um, it's God's intervention that pulls us out of that state. I hadn't made the Calvinistic connection with that word, but I think that's that's a good observation because I guess literally sovereign hands just means the hands of a sovereign or of a Lord. But of course, there's a lot behind that word in this movement, just like God's sovereignty is ordaining things, is bringing things to come to pass. Yep. I mean, and again, the the or- originators of this song are sovereign grace churches, sovereign grace music, what used to be called sovereign grace ministries. And that that group was sort of one of several that were at the the center of the new Calvinist movement. They named their whole they named their whole it's not a denomination, I guess, but their whole family of churches with that word sovereign. Let's look at second verse. You sought out the wanderers, made the prodigals come home with a lavish feast you You sought out the wanderers, made the prodigals come home. With a lavish feast, you welcomed us, for you made us your own. Yeah, so let me start off with the first half of this and and see what we have to say. So you sought out the wanderers and made the prodigals come home. So we have God, again, doing the action. God seeks out people who were wandering. So there's a sense in which they were aimless or lost, and prodigal is not a reference to the idea of prodigality in the sense of like generosity, but this is obviously, I think, a reference to the story of the the two sons or what's sometimes called the the parable of the prodigal son of an individual who basically just spends everything that he has and ruins his inheritance. And he is just, he's, he also is undone. He, he is, everything about him that would have signaled who he was and where he had come from, he had utterly cast away by his own foolishness. And so this is a, just a way of saying that, well, that, that parable about that son, I mean, there are a bunch of people like that. There are, there are though people that are running from God and that are throwing away, um, that are, you know, damaging the the image that they bear, God's image and all the promises that they have and all that. These people are like prodigals. So it's just, it's more kind of talking about 
the state that we were in before we had Christ, but also noticing that that God has sought out those people and he made them come home, which I quite like too. Again, this is God's action. Yes, and the wanderers and the prodigals here, um, we're, we're, I think, implied here, they're meant to be those people who are the we in the back end of the first verse. We were ruined in yeah, our sin and guilt so. and undone. So the wanderers and the prodigals, uh, we can talk about in the third person, but in the first verse, it was the first person, plural, is us. We were wandering. All we like sheep had gone astray. And we were the prodigals who had also squandered our inheritance and in reckless and sinful living. Um, and God made us come home. So uh, I just think both of these are, uh, both of those images are reminiscent of Luke 15. Mm-hmm. Um, now wanderers kind of, because we have sheep who go astray in Luke 15 and the shepherd brings them back. Yeah. You could say they wandered off. Um, and yeah, the parable of the prodigal son also in Luke 15. I just thought, what if, because there's so much style, uh, so, so much going on stylistically that undergirds a lot of these songs. What would it look like to have a song in the Sovereign Grace style, which is kind of this casual uh, acoustic coffee shop kind of sound? Um, but instead of we were ruined in our sin, it was like we were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, <laughs> covetous malice. <laughs> we are full of envy, murder, and strife. <laughs> it would just be kind of silly, but. It just feels like it's kind of toned down when you compare it to that. Yeah, um, it is. And this lavish feast, that must be what the parable that is brought to your mind. Yeah, called. and I don't know for sure that that's what they were thinking, but that's certainly what I'm thinking. And there are numerous places through scripture which describe God, again, not just welcoming a people and sort of being like, all right, now you're my people, whatever. He's bringing us into his prosperity and bountifulness and He's bringing us into um, a feast. Like that's the imagery that's used throughout Scripture. I mean, even in Song of Solomon, he's brought me to his banqueting table, and his banner over me is love. Uh, that this is a sign of belonging, uh, feasting with um, with those who uh, one loves, and that's what we see at the, with the parable in Matthew twenty two. Is is that it's a king um, who's in charge of the feast, and he brings these people in who he just finds out on the roads, presumably wandering on the roads, invites them in, and they got, they, the wedding hall is totally filled with guests. It's, uh, it's, it's a beautiful image, and I think that's what we see now, is that we were not his own. We were not God's own. We were outside, and then we were made God's own by the work of Christ which I think this song will talk about. And in my mind, when I think of this feast goes really, I think it's, con- I think it's continuing the thought of the parable of the prodigal son, because the prodigal son tells his dad, um, you're basically as good as dead to me. Give me the money that would come to me when you die. Uh, he blows it all. And then when he comes back, the father kills the fattened calf for him and has a huge feast to welcome him back. So Yeah. He made us his own.
You have loved us like you love your Son. We are heirs with Christ, bought by his blood. Oh, how great the love that we've been shown. We are your children now. You made us your own. There's a lot to like in this chorus. I it does the song doesn't have to do this and no you know just just to to be an excellent song a song doesn't have to mention Christ explicitly but I like that this song does mention Christ explicitly and in a couple of different ways but the, in in the way it does here it talks about God loving us as He loves Christ and because of Christ's work we have been purchased and even made heirs, which is reminiscent. So you read from Romans chapter one and Romans eight is all about this. So this is starting in verse 14 for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. So this is describing a new people or an expanded people for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba Father, Abba Father. So we have been adopted as sons, and we can speak to God in an intimate way. And then it, it continues to even address the idea that of all that adoption means. So the, um, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So we receive an inheritance with Christ as part of our belonging to his family. And I think this um, song marvels at that. So it describes it and then it marvels at it. Oh, how great the love that we've been shown. And then explicitly says what it means, by the way, by you made us your own. So uh, it would be it would be perfectly fine if the song just says you made us your own. I think it's reasonable to infer from that adoption, you know, but the song, this ver this chorus is also very explicit. We are your children now, which is exactly <laughs> what Romans 8 says. Yeah. And I think it's also an echo of 1 John 3, 1, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. There's <laughs> <laughs> so much. It's like begins in this hype, in this uh, subjunctive that we should be called uh, this and that is what we are, children of God. Yeah, it's, nice. yeah, it's marvelous. Literally. We are strangers to the world, but no strangers to your throne. We draw near you now with confidence, for all our fears are gone. What I like about this verse is that it begins to complete a thread that was begun earlier. So we begun this song by talking about people who were basically undone and alienated from God that were people that were wanderers and prodigals, okay, and who are otherwise basically strangers to God. And if you think about the parable of the wedding feast in Matthew 22, that's who God grabs is people who are, that's who the king, the Lord of the feast grabs are the strangers. But now this verse turns that around and says, we are strangers to the world. So our new status as children of God and heirs in Christ now makes the place where we were 
the people we were with and that we belong to, this old citizenship that we had, uh, something that is now strange to us. So we have been changed. We have been brought into a new family, but something has also changed. Our identity has changed. And so what that, that, that has repercussions for our old life in that we are now strange. We are now estranged from our old life. And we are now familiar to all of the glories and wonders of being God's children, which includes, as the second line of this verse says, the, a familiarity or a sense of belonging, even in the throne room. Even in, the, even in the throne of God. So God is our father, and he is also our king, and yet we n- need not fear approaching the throne. So we draw near with confidence, and our fears are gone, which I also think goes back to what I had read in Romans 8, uh, 15, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoptions of sons. So we have been united to our God, who is our father and also our king. Yeah, what a what a remarkable reversal of uh, citizenships here, where we were called out of the world. It's almost like, um, in a much bigger sense, uh, what happens when someone uh, gains American citizenship. If you gain American citizenship, you... Many, I, I don't know if it's always, but often have to revoke other national citizenship status. And so it's almost like um, you have to get hand in your old passport and that we are no longer uh, citizens of the world. Hence, we are strangers to the world. I think there's some ambiguity in the word world. Uh, and I think this is also inherent even in the scriptural passages where sometimes it's referring to um this the natural world uh that it's hostile to us because of adam's sin we're strangers to it uh you know we'll have thorns when we're working it but also the world is the, is the people uh who are um at enmity with god and so we're also strangers to those people as well um the throne room of a monarch is a scary place if you used to be an enemy and a rebel and so the fact that we can enter the throne room, uh, not just not as strangers, but, you know, as children, as the chorus said, and then also with confidence is an extremely powerful image. And this comes from Hebrews 4, uh, relying on, uh, of course, uh, Jesus as our high priest. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We can approach the throne of grace with confidence because Jesus is our high priest and our advocate. Now, this last line in this third verse, for all our fears are gone, Colin. Um, do you have any thoughts on this verse? Uh, no, other than just what I said about it, reminding me a little bit of that passage in Romans eight. Did you have some further thoughts? I was reflecting on our interview months ago with a pastor and he said he, uh, is cautious and I'm going to have to paraphrase. I can't give an exact quote. Could you tell uh, listeners which interview that is in case they want to go back? Yeah, that was our interview with Jason Dorsey in uh, Washington. And he said sometimes he doesn't want uh, 
songs to kind of overpromise things because uh, this phrase, our fears are all our fears are gone. This is true in an eternal sense. We have no, we have no need to fear anything. We, we don't even have to fear death. We don't fear de- or hell or damnation or anything like that because Christ is our advocate. But we do experience, as Jesus promised, troubles in this world and things that might cause us uh, to fear. And so I wonder, would you consider this careless language or is it just language that's on a different level from the kind of day-to-day fears? Uh, No, you know, Tyler, I think that's a really good point. And I hadn't noticed that. I think, I'm sure the intention here is to describe both a now state, but also a future state in which we are literally physically present in a, you know, in the throne room of God in a very real sense. And at that point, we will be able to say, all our fears are gone. I think you could still say, okay, well, in a, the the things that we fear no longer have power over us, but you're right. We will still, until we are perfected, experience fears of various sort and anxieties and troubles and tribulations. And we should be careful about suggesting that that's not the case because, you know, so, so I think you could, you could, you could say that this, I I think, yeah, I think there would be ways to take this line and maybe grab there are some available to use the language of David from the Goldsmith Odyssey. There is, there are some available interpretations of this, which could be like, oh, well, I'm a Christian, so now I guess I don't have to worry about being afraid, which that is not true. Mm-hmm. It's it's actually dangerous yeah. to to say that, and um, yeah, it almost leads people to a kind of either stoicism or a denial of the reality of the physical world. There are all kinds of problems with with that. Um, but I think, yeah, you're right. In this context, it's clearly talking about standing in the throne room of God without fear because Christ is our advocate. Yeah. And I mean, uh, so uh, to do the grammar thing, if we think about what's happening in verse 4, which is looking forward to the future. We haven't talked about verse four yet, but I'm sure we will momentarily. I wonder if this uh, this line in verse three is almost kind of looking forward to verse four, in which case we should think about it more as, as future-oriented, even though it's in verse three. Maybe it's sort of helping mm. to set up what's going to happen in verse four. So in other words, I think if if this song ended at verse three, I think actually this, all our fears are gone, leaves enough ambiguity that I might even ding the song a little bit with verse four coming up next. I feel a little bit better. Yeah. yeah. I think it does kind of bridge the content of three with four, especially with that conjunction at the beginning Four, all our fears are gone. Yeah. That bases the fearlessness on the preceding line. And we should re- remember that in this song, there's no chorus between verse three and four. So they are part of the same thought, you know? Well, let's continue the thought. When Christ our King returns, we'll meet saints we've never known, and forever 
we will be amazed that you made us your own. Okay, so uh, I want to actually say something first about verse 3, because it ties in now to verse 4. When you were talking about the world, being strangers to the world, you were saying there were two different ways you could think of the world, just like the natural world, but also the world being a people or groups of people that are hostile to God. And so I think what this verse, verse 4, is showing us is there is also a big group of people that exists throughout time uh, that some of them never meet, many of them, most of them, never meet each other. Um, then they're all part of this giant family, and there will be a day when Christ returns that we will get to meet all of these people. I was thinking about John 17, where Jesus is praying what some call the high priestly prayer, where he is talking a lot about two groups of people. He's talking about the world, um, and then he's talking about his people. And he talks about his people in a way that's kind of similar to the way that this song talks about them. So I won't read all this. You could read the whole of John 17, but uh, let me read 14 and a little bit beyond. Um, so he's talking about his disciples, and, and Jesus is praying to God. So this is Jesus praying to God. I have given them, the disciples, your word, and the world, so these people that are enmity, at enmity with God has and his people, have, has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world." Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrated myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. So Jesus draws distinction here between the world that's at enmity with him and enmity with his people. And his. And then on the other hand, he talks about his people who are in the world, but aren't of, of identity, of citizenship with the world. Now, this is where then in verse 20, he begins to get into this idea of meeting saints will never know and the kind of the bigness of God's people across time. Um, so he says in verse 20, I do not ask this for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that is through the what the disciples spread into the world, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And then there's more that talks about the, the benefits of being in this group. So Christ himself talks about his disciples and prays in front of his disciples about the disciples, but he also prays for us in front of his disciples. Because the group, you know, you and I, Tyler, and all other Christians who have never met the disciples and who will live you know, who, who lived in times and places far away from uh, first century AD Judea, um, we are belonging into this group that Christ has called out of the world. And so the song doesn't say all of this, obviously. It just says, we'll meet saints we've never known. Um, but it seems to be referencing this idea that there is a huge family. The family of God is huge. This isn't, this isn't a song, in other words, where the individual is just kind of saved, and it's very much about the intimacy between God and an individual. This song is very cognizant of a broader peoples 
and kind of being saved into that peoples, which I think is nice and is often lost in many contemporary Christian songs, which might get it right about Jesus saving, about sin, but it's it's nice to have this broader picture of the church embedded hmm. in the song. Wow, Colin, I had not thought of that, but now that you mention it, I interpreted this line as kind of looking back in time and saying, okay, yeah, I'll get to meet, I don't know, Martin Luther, I'll get to meet some people who live before me. But now that you say that, I'm thinking more in lines of the Psalm that says, let this be written for the sake of those alive in future days, that there are, you know, if if Christ does not come during my lifetime, I will one day meet people who were not even existing on earth who yet believe in the gospel. These are saints that I have never known, not even read about because they don't exist yet. Um, it's kind of metaphysical, actually, to think about. Yeah, and I think it's uh, the uh, the first thing is also true, too. I think it's also referring to people that came before us. But It's the invisible church throughout all generations. Exactly. Yep, exactly. Why didn't they just say that? Um, okay. Well, I think that concludes our examination of the lyrics. Colin, would you like to offer any concluding thoughts on this song that you brought? Um, we don't often bring this up, but we've been trying to bring it up a little more often when we think of it. I'll say another thing I like about the song, it is easily adaptable to any kind of worship service. It's a very singable melody, simple chord structure, it's a it's a great song also just to you know for for its kind of musical qualities as well i think the recording of it's very very nice uh it's mixed well uh, i think it's sung well i really appreciate actually the woman that uh sings this song she's sung many of sovereign grace's songs she's she she's excellent in terms of her voice but never um kind of showy or anything like that. Like I just, she's, she, she sings well and in a very professional way, but in a way which I think calls attention to what she's singing and not herself. Is that Vicki Cook? I don't think that's the person that sings it on the recording. I think it's a, uh, I think Vicki Cook at this point was a bit older and actually wasn't um, participating in a lot of the the actual music making part. She's participating more in the writing. And I think it's a young, I don't even know the person's name who sung the song, but she's, she's clearly younger. She, she sung on several Sovereign Grace albums around the kind of late 2000s, early 2010s. Megan Baird? Maybe if that's her name. Yeah. Sovereign Grace music says Megan Baird. Okay. Is that, the, that could be who it is. Yeah. Okay. But otherwise, yeah, you know, content obviously is good. I, like I said, I think you're right to bring up the the fears thing. Um, I think in the context of the whole of the song, it doesn't bother me too much, but I think I think you're right to, to flag that. And I think we as a podcast should be careful um, with penalizing too many omissions. And I think we have been careful in the past, yeah. but um, if you begin with a blank piece of paper, and your goal is to write a song that can fit on one page. Um, there's obviously a lot that's in the Bible <laughs> that's going to not make it onto your page and not make it into your song. So I think on this podcast, we tend to more harshly penalize deliberate um, error or yeah. uh, deliberate. Uh, it's almost like 
I hate to use the word sin because it, I'm not saying that there's sin here, but it's like penalizing the sin of commission differently than a sin of omission, yeah. if that makes sense. And so, yeah. You, you're exactly right, right? A song could only capture so much. The way that uh, I think a, I think good, successful worship songs tend to focus on a particular theme or just an idea that can be expressed through imagery and metaphor and succinct lyrics and where the omissions can be a problem is if the song is is omits some key aspect of a particular theme. So like a lot of songs talk about salvation, for example, a lot of them. And it's like, well, if you're not talking about sin, I mean, that is a key aspect of the theme, theme of salvation. So a song may say, oh, Jesus loves me, Jesus saved me. Jesus is great. I'm so happy that I'm a Christian now, et cetera, et cetera. And there's no discussion of what it was that the Christian was saved for. That is a meaningful omission, right? That mm. That is an omission which actually needs to result in the song getting a lower rating. If a song is talking about adoption and, you know, it doesn't allude to every verse on adoption, but effectively gets down the main points about our inheritance in Christ, about our being adopted out of the world and being maybe resistant to it. I mean, just like this song does. I think this song gets everything that it needs to get to coherently and, uh, you know, talk about this idea of being adopted into God's family. Absolutely. There was a very prominent pastor author last week who tweeted, our fundamental identity oh, I saw that. is that of a sinner in need of God's yeah. forgiveness. I mean, something to that. Effect. We could just say who it is so people could look it up. This sure. is Kevin DeYoung. Yeah, Kevin DeYoung said this, and he immediately got a lot of pushback from people who were saying, um, our fundamental identity is a human beings created in the image of God, um, and really raking him over the coals. And he issued a response that said, um, I should have phrased this um, more, or I think he said I could have phrased this more carefully, um, but it's best on Twitter to not assume uh, that someone with whom you may disagree uh, has abandoned all uh, tenets of right. Orthodox Christianity. Right. Uh, so it's it's just clear, yes, there are um, you know different aspects of our identity. Um, being a sinner is one of them. Being created in the image of God is the other one. They're not mutually exclu exclusive, um, and we can't pack as much into a tweet as we might like no, to. Even with the expanded, whatever, 240 characters or whatever, <laughs> that's still not enough to put in the entire Westminster Shorter Catechism, right? Or even, yeah, or better yet, the Bible. I yeah. mean, yeah. Yeah, I saw that exchange, and I remember thinking, because uh, several people I follow criticized Kevin DeYoung on the grounds that you mentioned. And I remember kind of thinking, well, yes, Kevin DeYoung should have clarified what he said. What he was saying is mostly not true, or is mostly true, but he could have clarified it a bit better. But on the other hand, I did think it was disingenuous of the people that criticized him. It's like, no, you know that Kevin DeYoung knows that people are created in the image of God. Like, this is not, again, yeah, this is, and, and he's right. Like, you, it's really easy to criti criticize the motives of somebody or, you know, you don't want to be pedantic when we're reviewing a song and be like, well, they didn't talk about this, 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 and this. You try to evaluate a song based on the the, the objective 
facts of scripture, but you also try to judge the song based on the rules that it sets up for for itself. Like if a song talk, like I said, if a song talks about salvation, you can start to say, okay, well, does it talk about salvation effectively? Does it do so without error? Are there not major omissions, right? And you you can never expect a song to get everything about salvation in it, but for what for what it is, does it do it well? Yeah, and I think um in response to you know maybe being too persnickety, um in the same sense that a major omission or even a deliberate omission is a huge problem, being deliberately obtuse is also That's a huge right. problem. In yes. How you deal with something, it's like. Well, I didn't see you define sin in the first verse of the song. And it's like, well, from context, we were ruined in our sin. We were guilty and undone. That's a pretty decent working definition yeah. of sin that we can it's work with. It's not Romans chapter sin. three, but it's, 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 it's pretty clear. Yeah. And we have seen songs that it looks to us, certainly, that they are deliberately uh, omitting or obscuring truth. And that also needs to be called out. Okay, Colin, what did you give this song? Gave this song five out of five cooks in the kitchen because um, number one, you've got Vicky and uh, uh, Steve Cook. Forget the husband's name. Uh, Vicky and Steve Cook. Uh, and then I like the idea of cooks in the kitchen because of the wedding feast. So somebody's doing the cooking. And so maybe Steve and Vicky Cook are, are the cooks in the kitchen. Okay. So five out of five cooks in the kitchen is good. It's not too many cooks in the kitchen spoils no. the broth or something like that. No, uh-uh. Yeah. Although that would be a very, if you, Stephen Vicky Cook, if you ever hear this and you want to make a podcast, that would not be a bad. Cooks in the kitchen? Uh, too many cooks in the yeah, kitchen. Or that, they like should, that. Yeah, that is. That is a great idea. Someone should let them All know. All right. Well, that's funny that you went that route. I also gave it five out of five power couples yeah, because okay. Stephen Vicky Cook were uh, involved in the songwriting with Bob Coughlin. And I noticed they have written a lot. They have written many good songs. Yeah, prolific I think songwriters. They did, did they do Before the Throne? Yep. Um, At least Vicky Cook was involved in that. Maybe Steve was too. I mean, that's that's a huge song. Probably some of the better songwriters that have not been heard of, you know, like people know about Stuart Townend and the Gettys and other songwriters. Steve and Vicky Cook have been involved in a lot of great songs and probably nobody knows who they are. Well, we do. Listeners, thanks so much for tuning into this episode of The Worship Review. We look forward to seeing you again next week. And goodbye. Goodbye. Got to end it with an awkwardness, too. So we got to three. Well done, Tyler. I didn't think you were going to get to three. (laughs) Please just leave it like that. That would be such a funny closer. (laughs) Oh, dear. Oh, dear. All right. Uh, Should I re-roll an outro? No. And goodbye. perfect. Perfect. You've been listening to The Worship Review. Please subscribe to the podcast, leave a comment, or email us at feedback at theworshipreview.com. We accept donations at anchor.fm slash theworshipreview and patreon.com slash theworshipreview. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.